This is an interview on Attention Tracking Technologies with Tim Holmes. The interviewer was Joseph Bedford, produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. The interview took place on January 29th, 2013, in London. Why, why, why I get very wary of answering a question like what is attention and, mm-hmm. and so on, because, because it, it, we don't know. We don't know the entire process. We don't know the entire sequence. And if we did, um, I think it would be it would potentially be quite terrifying. There's always an individual component in attention because everything that you have been exposed to from the day you were born has influenced the way that your visual system and your, the way that your brain constructs this perception of the visual scene. Okay, so um, uh, I'm Tim Holmes. I um, am a visual neuroscientist. And this is Attention, the Princeton Audio Journal for Architecture. In January of 2013, Joseph Bedford, a doctoral candidate at the Princeton University School of Architecture, interviewed Tim Holmes on the topic of current research in visual attention and eye tracking. The conversation began with Tim Holmes explaining how our attention works, and then it moved into a discussion about space, marketing, politics, and ethics in the future, given recent advances in eye tracking technology. Can I just ask you to introduce yourself to the team? I currently am Technical Director of Acuity Intelligence uh, Limited, which is a a UK-based research-led um, company that looks at integration of, of technologies, including eye tracking, but other technologies associated with attention and cognitive and decision making processes. Uh, I also occasionally lecture here at Royal Holdings. My first degree was in mathematics. That's the driving force of everything that came after, I think. So I'm very much I'm a, uh, an analytical, quantitative kind of person. I then um, went out into the real world and worked commercial companies, did a lot of IT, a lot of software development and things like that. Started to get quite interested in, in what drives the decisions about building of products, design of products and, and, and how we understand what people actually want in a product. Um, and that was sort of my, my motivation for coming back to university, doing um, the psychology uh, diploma. And my PhD was, um, it, it's got a really long thesis title, which I won't bore you with, but basically it was looking at trying to use the patterns of eye movements that people make when they're, when they're making um, preference decisions, and then using those to influence um, an evolutionary algorithm, which is a machine learning algorithm, an optimization tool, so that you can actually show them stimuli learn something from the eye movements and then optimise those stimuli, show them again, learn a bit more and so on. And basically you can, you can try to optimise these images according to their preference um, without them actually having to say anything, without them having to do anything. They're literally mm-hmm. just looking quite naturally at these images and they are changing over time and they will start to converge on, a, on, a, on an image that, that, that they like. We sometimes talk about it as being a sort of mind-reading tool. Any behaviour comes from the brain, Mm. and so um, the eye movements are very much 
um, the process, the, the, the end result of a lot of this decision making. A lot of these eye movements are, I won't call them unconscious, but they're, they're almost pre-conscious. We are not aware of a lot of the eye movements that we make, and a lot of what we see is, is filtered perceptually in the brain. So I think people tend to think that the eye is the most important part of, of human vision, and in fact it's the brain, mm -hmm. that, that um, probably what you actually perceive the world to look like up to about 90% of that is actually constructed in the brain. It is not from the pure um, signals that come into your eyes. So it's a process of filtering, of filling in, of, of enhancement and inhibition and so on. So there's, there's all different processes that go on. Mm -hmm. um, the end result is the way that you perceive the world. Okay, so just the first question, how does our attention work? Um, hmm. That's a very big question because um, it's still being discussed. We're still investigating that, and, and um, there are there are several big sort of topics in neuroscience that we don't have the answers to. Consciousness is one, um, and attention is is another. Um, my immediate response when someone asks me is, "How does attention work?" Is, is well, what kind of attention are we talking about? But even with visual attention. There are multiple processes, um, and what, from what we know, it's a bit of a tug of war process. Okay, so um, you're probably aware of the fact, just just from a, your own perspective, that you can direct your attention. A classic example would be if you want to make a cup of tea, you can direct your attention towards the kettle, towards the cup, towards the sugar bowl, and so on. So you can actually perform the task. So, and this is a, this is what we would call um, it, we call it voluntary attention, and that's that's attention where we are effectively we are moving this um, this attentional spotlight around the scene. Okay, so by attentional spotlight, I mean this is the the sort of the part of the scene that we are giving our cognitive resources to. Now, so do we have a limited quantity of cognitive resources then that we're almost managing and moving around? Yeah, so we, we from, from various studies, we know that, first of all, attention is a sort of capacity-limited process. So um, there's a certain amount of visual information we can process. There's also a certain amount of auditory information and so on. Um, and, and to a certain extent, they are independent. So, you know, you can, you can max out the visual attention system, but you can still then add in some auditory information as well. You have um, a very limited area uh, of the visual scene that is processed with high visual acuity. So if you want to look at something in very sharp detail, um, the area that you have is approximately two degrees of visual angle. What's that mean? If you hold your arm out in front of you and you look at your thumbnail, that's about two degrees of visual angle. Okay, so, so that is the really sharp bit that we have. Then we have an area slightly um, uh, bigger around that, about 10 degrees, um, so about the size of your fist if you hold it out. And, and that is what we call the paraphobia, where the vision is it's okay, it's not so good. So some of the color vision is starting to degrade at that point. Some of the, um, the contrast, the, the, the edge detection and so on, some of that is starting to, to fall away too. Um, and then the rest of this visual scene that we have, 
that it's about 120 to 140 degrees, so it's, it's much bigger than those two areas that we talked about, is the periphery. Mm. And, and, and this area is basically, um, has fairly poor visual acuity, and it's designed primarily to, to detect change in the visual scene. In order to pay attention to things, in order to, to look at the kettle and the sugar bowl and the tea cup and so on, when you're making a cup of tea, you have to move your eyes. And so this actually correlates very nicely with this model of, a, of, a, of an attentional spotlight. Attention is almost like a gateway, a gatekeeper to, to your memory. So um, you, can, you can use memory studies, memory type tasks, to, to examine or probe the idea of, well, what were people attending to? The problem with this is that with memory, um, you've got a couple of points where it can, it can go wrong. First of all, something may never have been encoded in memory, okay? So that's normally because you didn't pay attention to it. But then there can also be the problem that someone can't retrieve it from memory, okay? So this is the second process, and, and when you then ask someone to do a memory task, you're not entirely sure whether it was the encoding that was the problem or whether it's the retrieval that's the problem. And so it's not such a direct um, way of, of looking at attentional questions. Tim then spoke at length about involuntary or bottom-up attention processes, which take place in the periphery of the visual scene, and how they interact with voluntary or top-down attention processes. So we know that we can direct our attention when there's something that we want to do, when there's someone we want to look at, and, and so on. But this peripheral area is designed to detect change, and we, and we, we think from an evolutionary perspective this is because um, if something changes away from, from your sort of your foveal area, this, this area that's got very, very good vision, um, that basically it could be a threat. And, and, and we use this all the time. So you imagine this in the modern day context when you're, you're out crossing the road. Um, you, you're, very, you're very aware of um, the fact that you will detect motion, something coming towards you, um, long before it's actually in the centre of your vision. And that's because your periphery has detected this and it's probably pulled your attention to that location. And pull here is the key word, that it pulls it. It's not a voluntary shift. It's normally quite fast. It can be over quite quickly, and and frequently these are these are what I would call more these um, these preconscious um, processes. We call these involuntary shifts of attention or exogenous shifts of attention. They pull your attention, and so there are these two systems, and they're in constant battle because because you know that you are always engaged in in something. There's always, there's always something you're trying to do, uh, even if it's just sort of um, lying on the sofa and, and you're watching TV or you're talking to someone or, or whatever, that you're, you're still engaged in some kind of task. Mm. But um, the, the less immediate that task is, the chances are the, the more susceptible you are to these exogenous pulls of attention, these external pulls. 
So are you saying that the voluntary direction of this spotlight of your attention is something that is, because it's more voluntary, because it's the act of your will, it's somehow engaged in your conscious thought process? You will consciously decide, I want to look over there, I want to see what's in that shop window, and then the unconscious thought processes are fighting with the conscious in the whole dynamic of perception itself. Um, so we talk about sort of top-down attention and bottom-up attention. Top-down attention is this voluntary stuff. It, it's because, and we say top-down because it's coming from the highest processing levels of the brain. So the prefrontal cortex, this, this is where, you're, you, where all your motivations, your, your, your task plans and so on, everything that, that you want to do that comes from within you probably starts here and it then gets passed down through the brain to the motor cortex and the motor cortex makes things happen it actually and that enables you to to walk to somewhere to pick something up to look at something and so on whereas the uh, the other side the involved stuff bottom up attention um, is because it's coming in from the very low levels of the brain and it's working it's this is the signals making their way up to the prefrontal cortex effectively Um, so the way the visual system works is information comes in through the eyes, it goes um, through um, the thalamus, through an area called the lateral geniculate nucleus, and then it will head to the very back of your, your brain here, which is where the visual cortex is. And the visual cortex um, basically processes that visual scene in terms of certain kinds of properties. So um, things like colour, things like um, brightness, things like um, contrast and edges and, and things um, uh, and also motion so it's simultaneously um, processing the peripheral and the focal aspects of uh, at that the, point it's, it's processing everything everything all at once yeah the way um, so, so these are the very low level regions of the brain and, th and mm -hmm. then it starts to piece this together the visual signal to start to form things like um, objects for example so and faces and things like this that we have specific regions slightly higher up that, that are good at detecting faces, good at detecting objects and so on. And then and then those will then feed sort of further back into things like in, into your prefrontal cortex where, where it needs that information in order to make decisions about what to do next. The the low level processes therefore um, are very influenced by these these very basic properties of the visual scene. So things mm. like colour and so on. There's a classic sort of um, model that's used for, uh, particularly for involuntary attention. It's by a couple of guys called Itty and Cock, and, and basically it's called it's about visual salience. Visual salience talks about the idea of um, the whole of the visual scene and the amount of information that each part of that visual scene gives to you relative to every other part of that visual scene. It's a bit, it's a bit difficult to explain in words without pictures, but um, you can think of it almost as being a measure of um, conspicuousness. Right? So, so this is, what is it in the visual scene that is the thing that if you weren't performing any kind of task, if you were just looking at the scene, what is it that would grab your attention first? The salience of a visual scene, Tim says, is a measure of qualities like luminance, contrast, motion, color, and so on, all of which are found in the low-level processes of the brain. The salience of a scene can be objectively calculated, 
But why is salience important for someone who is trying to perform a particular task? And what about involuntary recognition of things like faces in a crowd, or other visuals encoded in memory? There are a whole range of, of different influences on attention. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, salience is, is very much a it's something you can you can calculate. So we can take we can take a picture right now of, of this room, um, and we could run it through a, a, a computer program, and we could say, okay, this is the most salient part of this scene. Um, problem with that, right, is that first of all. It's not bringing in any of your top-down processes. Imagine we were looking for a banana. Mm -hmm. um, we would pretty much inhibit anything that wasn't yellow, and we would look for yellow things. If there were other yellow things in the scene, chances are we'd probably look at them. Uh, if there were yellow curvy things in the scene, we'd probably look at them mm -hmm. even more. Um, and, but this process is designed to facilitate the speed that we will actually find the banana. This is the top-down process, sending information down to the lower-level visual processing and saying, okay, um, let's do a little bit of filtering, let's make this a bit easier and say, well, we know what some of the properties of these, this thing that we're trying to look for, so let's filter out everything that doesn't quite fit. So okay. this is another process that we call attentional modulation, and this is where basically the properties of something can actually um, inhibit parts of the visual scene the specific properties of the thing you're looking for, so the task that you're trying to perform, those objects, you can actually um, enhance detection for those. This brings us back to your opening question yeah. about attention. This is why attention is 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 such a big topic, um, and um, and we don't have a complete single model. Um, we know that faces will pull attention. When you're born, your actual, your, your visual acuity is, is maximized to be at the distance that you'll be held when you're sort of breastfeeding from your mother, right? And it's designed to work on your mum's face. There are certain disorders um, like uh, autism and so on, autistic spectrum disorders, where it appears that people who are less good at interpreting the intentions of people's actually look at faces differently from people, from, from your typically developing um, people. Over time, we have evolved to be very sensitive to faces, and now, um, if, if I show you a scene and there's a face in it, I can guarantee that you will actually look at that face. The, where attention starts to get a little bit, um, a little bit more more difficult but also more interesting from my perspective is when you start to try and look at, at the attention in terms of okay how is this mapping to cognitive processes so so um, because we know that people will look longer um, at things that they like but we also know people will look at things that they don't understand mm. or at things that they are uh, sometimes they'll look at things that they're afraid of. I'm picturing someone in an urban environment and some of these things that might be grabbing attention. We've mentioned faces, I was wondering if brands and logos and icons, if there's a logic to how those things are working in our urban environment to grab attention. The majority of, of big brand owners would hope that their logos would attract your attention and they, they actually invest a lot of time uh, and money in in trying to come up with brands that 
that do attract attention, but also brands that um, are are memorable. Let's take a a, a, a big brand like Coke. Coca Cola. Um, the font there is something you'd, you'd instantly recognise as being Coca Cola, regardless of what words were actually written in it. The the um, the red and white combination for Coca Cola is incredibly strong. The the little swirl across the bottom of the Coke logo again. Any one of those components you would probably um, associate with Coca Cola. And and um, if I were to uh, ask you to search for a Coca-Cola bottle, for, and this is a visual attention task, right? I could probably enhance your performance just by cueing you in with one aspect of the, the branding for a Coca-Cola bottle. But branding's a bit more than, than just images. These days, more and more, they're trying to, I think, build uh, what they would call brand identity. So actually treat a brand more like it is a, a, a person and we talk about people sort of trusting a brand and we talk about um, recognising a brand and, and, and we talk about aspirational brands. So mm -hmm. it's just like, well, everything about Apple, for example, it, it represents who I want to be. My friends have Apple um, phones and, and iPads and so on and um, I, like the, I like their design ethic, I like the mm -hmm. simplicity of their interfaces and so on. And... and and it becomes something that's actually more than just um, a logo, more than just an image. It, it does actually take on a whole, a whole persona. With memory, um, the more connections you have to a particular piece of information, the easier it is to retrieve that piece of information. The more likely it's to be, it, it, it is to show up in a search, so you can think about it when, like, when you're doing a Google search. The more, the more meta tags that there are for a particular um, or keywords in a search, the, the more the more chance you are, you have of finding the thing that you actually want. The closer your match, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and that same process happens with memory. By by building a more complex identity, a more more human identity for a brand. You, you actually take advantage of the fact that we're very good at encoding some of that. We actually, um, it, it, it's almost we're encoding it as a different kind of object now. A lot more connections in there, a lot more ways to, to get to that information. And so it's more likely to be recalled. Um, it's also more likely, therefore, to be recognised. And things that you recognise will pull your attention a little bit. And, and so, you know, this is where it can all start to play one off another. Next, Tim talks about the politics of attention. If our environments can now be engineered to attract our attention without our consent, how much free will do we really have in navigating them? It's back to this, it, this tug of war that we're mm -hmm. talking about. That, um, that if you take a purely sort of low-level approach, so the bottom-up approach, if, you, if that's, that's what you, you think dominates attention, then you are effectively saying that we don't actually have much free will in, in, in where our attention goes. Unfortunately, evidence would not support that. Evidence would suggest that when we are performing a task, we have actually pretty good control over our attention. And as soon as we start to apply some will, then um, 
then we can control our attention mm. quite well. If you really want to know what's pulling someone's attention, it, it's much more likely to be the influence of what they're trying to do, and these are effects that come a little bit later in a viewing process. There must be some struggle there, just signified by the fact that corporations, at least, or many other kinds of bodies, are very invested financially in understanding how some of these more involuntary modes of attention do grab and alter or they they want to they want to pull your attention right right um, so and this is this is where the politics comes in because they they want to take ownership of something that that you really want to retain ownership of. The way they can do this is by using all these tricks of, um, of the exogenous attention that we talked about. Now, they're quite strong, these fake effects, but as I said, they're also quite short-lived. A classic one would be right now, which is that um, pop-up adverts on the web. When they sort of first started to appear, you couldn't help but look at them. And you couldn't help but look at them because they popped up. They were a change in the visual scene. They pull your attention, and you whoosh off you go, and you're there, and and then something's happening. So you sort of like, oh, I might as well look at this while I'm over here. So, um, they were actually quite effective. But we are learning to adapt to this now. So this is the other thing. We now know that these pop-ups exist. We now know that actually, if we're trying to do something, that pop-up doesn't know what I'm trying to do although these days it might start to have a bit of an idea. But, but on the whole, that pop-up is just an automated process that's coming. Therefore, it's probably not relevant to what I'm trying to do. Therefore, I can dismiss it. And, and you can dismiss it before the, the conscious processing of the attention has actually clicked in. In eye movements, we, we, we can basically separate things out into, into the movements, which are the saccades and the dwells, which are the fixations. And a saccade, so a movement, typically takes 30 to 70 milliseconds. It's very short. Fixations can be, can be any length of time, probably over about 30 to 40 milliseconds. But in order for us perceptually to be able to process it, so they probably need to cross over sort of like 60, 70 milliseconds or more before you stand any chance of being able to be aware of the fact that you've actually stopped moving the eye. And in fact, most of the time that you are moving the eyes, your vision is actually suppressed, so you're pretty much blind while you're doing these saccades. Um, and then when you, when you fixate, that's when you start processing, and the brain actually does a little bit of backward processing there to fill in the gap for you, um, so you don't see it as, as, as flashes of, of vision. During that fixation, uh, if it's very short, so say 50 milliseconds, and then you go back to what you were doing, then you probably won't, that will probably never enter your consciousness at all. Okay, so, so this is um, the kind of thing that we typically do now with a pop-up, that we, 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 we do get pulled, our attention does get pulled by it, but we immediately dismiss it and go straight back. Where the corporations want to, to to, to get involved is it, it's on that crucial sort of difference between a 50 millisecond fixation and let's say a 100 millisecond fixation because if they can hold your attention when it's landed then, then they kind of won. They start to have a chance 
of making it through to memory. And that's where they want to go. That's their ultimate goal with anything branded. It's, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not just about capturing your attention. It's about getting into memory. The, the difference between that is literally milliseconds. So far, we have been speaking about attention as an ahistorical phenomenon. Now, Joseph poses the question of adaptation. While the brain has evolved slowly over thousands of years, how has human attention adapted to today's rapidly changing media environment? First of all, you have to sort of think in terms of, of evolution, mm -hmm. that um, the processes that guide our attention have been built over long time. And so when we talk about something like PDAs or web pages or so on, um, influencing our attention, I'm, I'm sure they do, but they are very recent and very short-lived effects relative to the things that are biologically developed over, over thousands and thousands of years. The processes that I talked about at the start with regarding the involuntary attention and so on, those, those, those aren't changing. Or, or certainly they're not changing at, at any rate that I think we can see. What is changing is our strategies for handling the information. Something that's actually being studied quite a lot at the moment is, is, is the idea of attention when it's focused on multiple screens. When you're at home these days, um, even though the TV's on, even though there are people in the room to interact with, even though you may be flipped, you may have a magazine, um, or more likely an iPad version of a magazine, um, then you've got multiple um, things that you, you are attending to at the same time. Um, so it starts to get quite interesting now about how this kind of setup is, is how we're handling that and how good we are at processing it, whether, whether we are actually processing multiple streams simultaneously or whether it's more of a sort of um, serial polling of, of those devices. So you sort of like you go from your, from your iPad to your partner to the TV to your iPad to your partner to the TV sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, or, or whether um, you are controlling the spotlight around these processes. So something we haven't really mentioned yet is, is the interaction of different types of attention. And we know that um, auditory attention can actually pull visual attention. If somebody speaks over here, then not only will your attention, the, the attentional spotlight of, of, of listening move in that direction, um, but you will probably orient your visual attention over there as well. So there are multiple effects there. But yeah, so, so the, the, the question about how we divide attention across these yeah. multiple, multiple inputs is, is, is an interesting question, but it's one that we're still actually starting, trying, to, trying to get our head around a little bit. It is a fairly recent phenomenon, right, that we would actually be trying to do multiple things at the same time. And we know that if you distribute attention, then yes, you may be able to um, attend to more things, but you will attend to them less well. If you really want to to process something, so to remember something in detail, or to um, to learn about something, then 
then focusing your attention on one thing will be better than trying to divide it across two. Now, there is a, there is a counter-argument to this, that if you have different ways of linking things together, so it might be the case that, you yes, your lecturer is saying one thing, you don't quite get it from the way they're saying it and their slides, but if you go onto the internet and you look at, God forbid, Wikipedia or something else, then, then you, you find an image that actually helps to clarify it for you it might be the combination of their verbal uh, explanation, their auditory explanation, mm -hmm. and this image that suddenly forms the link, and actually that enables you to encode that information better, enables you to, uh, to achieve a deeper level of understanding. I don't think it's actually an attention mm -hmm. issue, because I think it's more about information and quality of information and, and linkages in, in memory and depth of learning and all that kind of stuff, which yeah. are different processes. After a brief discussion of habituation and its effect on attention, in which Tim explains that a person who has been living in a desert develops an entirely different set of perceptual values than a person who has been living in a jungle, the conversation turns again to our contemporary environment. Joseph asks about how we defend ourselves, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, against overstimulation, especially within the context of the contemporary city. Tim talks about how children today are growing up alongside new forms of communication. The whole reason we have an attentional filter at all is because we'll, in any environment, just from the amount of information that there is, there's too much for the brain to process. As wonderful as the brain is, it, it, it can't cope with that much information, so the brain has to filter it somehow. There's just too much. An example people often give is, is the kind of attunement that um, younger children will have who play computer games frequently to kind of rapid uh, transformation, stimulation in the visual field. This is what the brain is brilliant at is what is what is what when we talk about plasticity this is what the brain is actually really doing a lot of the time is it, it, it's adjusting thresholds the brain can do this all the time um, mm. and what's what will be interesting I think is to see how this modulation occurs with um, with children who are growing up in in, in a very different um, world now even from, from you know, when I was a kid when I was a kid um, you didn't have a computer, you didn't have a mobile phone, you had a book if you were lucky. But now you'll see infants being given smartphones just almost as, as, as pacifiers. Before and, they even and have their language, they learn to swipe. Some people have suggested that, that things like attention disorders and so on that we see um, uh, occurring quite frequently these days, that, that some of this might be down to overstimulation, the fact that... Um, that uh, too much, too much variety, too much information, too much change is occurring. Given all of what we've said about attention in relation to media, can you tell me about how your field is changing rapidly, or what changes are taking place in terms of new models, new new thought processes, new technologies to begin to think about this? The actual technique of eye tracking hasn't, it, it, in many ways it, it's very similar to what you just did, we're still looking at patterns of reflected light um, however typically what we're looking for is reflections reflections that we can detect on the eye itself when we, when we shine a beam into the eye, mm -hmm. um, these days we use infrared, um, which is 
uh, it's visually uh, invisible, um, but moreover, um, it's very safe for to have that light shining to your eye. And what we what we typically do um, is we we use infrared to illuminate the eye. We um, can uh, recognize an eye through a camera, uh, and then we can um, record the movement of that pupil. These days, we've got eye trackers that will. Um, will sample the pupil's position 2,000 times a second. We have um, eye trackers that um, work uh, on, a, on a desktop with a, with a computer uh, or that can eye track you when you are uh, manipulating a, a real-world object, so um, the iPhone you've got in your hand, for example. Mm -hmm. um, or we've now got to the point with miniaturization and wireless technologies where these devices can be built into glasses effectively and you can go out now into the real world uh, and we can eye track your behaviour when you're, when you're moving through spaces, when you're moving independently, when you're dealing with real world stimuli. And for me I think this is, this is possibly one of the most exciting developments in eye tracking. When eye tracking always required you to be sitting at a desk, looking at a computer screen, maybe um, uh, with your chin in a chin rest, it destroys the naturalism of, of the research that you do. So we talk about, in psychology, we talk about this, this phrase ecological validity, um, and what that means is the, the idea that, um, that the method that you're using and the stimuli that you're using um, translate to real-world tasks and real-world stimuli. And, and clearly, um, a photograph of St Paul's Cathedral showing on a computer screen is never going to be the same as looking at St Paul's Cathedral when you're standing there. Or you probably can't replicate all of the other sensory inputs that you receive at the same time. People tend not in a lab to think, when they're doing a visual study, they tend not to think about the auditory information you would have been receiving at the same time. The, the, the smell, the, 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 um, the, the, the taste of the air, the temperature changes, the, 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 the humidity, all of these kinds of things. We all know that, that, that it's, it can be quite a, a deeply sensory experience to, to walk into one of these great cathedrals, and, and, and it, it's more than visual. It's, it's all the senses kicking in, the echoes, the, 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 the flickering candlelight, stained glass, the, the smell of the church, and so on. In order to study how our attention and how, um, how we behave and the cognitive processes behind those behaviours um, in the real world, this is where I think that the mobile eye tracking is exciting mm -hmm. because I think it, it gives us a chance to go beyond anything that we can do in virtual environments. Do you even get to the point of what they feel about it? Can you correlate those patterns and signatures with, say, what they might tell you after the fact that you, you they can really like something and then that maps with a certain signature? Yes, you can certainly do that, and that's what I did in my PhD. Right. Um, but it's quite noisy, so that, by which I mean there's, there's, that there's a lot of variance in those results, mm -hmm. and not everybody works the same way. So typically, I mean... What, when research is done, you normally use a combination yeah. of attention and, and maybe self-report. But, but also, um, these days, we can use other measures as well. Um, we can use things like um, heart rate and galvanic skin response um, and, and even, even EEG these days. Um, 
send someone out in the environment with a wireless EEG headset, with a, um, a wireless GSR sensor, wireless heart monitor, and all these kind of things. Just for people who don't know what's there. Oh, yeah, sorry. So, um, EEG, um, electroencephalograph, it, it's basically um, detecting um, the electrical signals that we can detect from the, the neuronal um, mm. uh, transmissions in the brain. So, actually, um, it's direct recording from the brain, but it's it's limited in what it can do in, in terms of the the sort of the signals we can detect tend to be um, those from the from the outer layer of the brain, so from the cortex rather than deep brain areas. That can be mapped with something like eye movements. So we if we can if we can see activation in a particular brain area combined with the fact that we know what they're looking at then we can start to say, well, actually, this combination of events seems to map with being disgusted by something or then being really attracted to something um, or, or they're um, trying to recognise something. The more um, sources of information we have, in many ways, the more options we have to try and come up with a signature that, that for that particular activity. Now, obviously, it's quite tricky to do this and... and, and Everyone's slightly different, but what you and and also you need to go through all the different activities in order to map them. For a long time, we've been looking at all these different techniques have been used by different groups of people, and and um, and there are experts in all of these fields. But now um, the technology is such that we we have processing power with computers that we can actually start to um, combine signals, we can record them simultaneously thanks to the wonderful world of wireless communication and Bluetooth, we can now actually send people out and they can move through a space and we can get all this data we can start to build up a better picture um, of the different kinds of responses that are, um, that, that are going on in the, in the brain and the body um, that will allow us to, to try and interpret um, what somebody's actually thinking what they're feeling and so on We've spoken mostly about the patterns, but is there data about actually what they're looking at? So if um, you send someone out into the field, are you also recording what, with a video camera or something, exactly what the point of focus sure. is as they walk around? Any mobile eye-tracking device will, will normally have two cameras, one pointing back at the eye to record where the eye is looking, mm -hmm. but also one pointing forward to record the visual scene. And, and it wouldn't be much use if you couldn't map one to the other, right? Mm -hmm. So so that's that's what you do with eye tracking. You overlay the gaze position on that scene and you can start to look at what it is in that scene that they're looking at. So and then that is what can cue you clue you in to what some of these other signals that you might be recording might actually be, be meaning. There's uh, so so one of the things that I'm that, that that I was very interested in during my PhD is is the idea of, of whether we um, are naturally drawn to things that we find aesthetically pleasing, whether we, we actually attend to them differently from um, things that we don't find pleasing. There's some um, suggestion in the literature that we might actively seek these things out. If we sort of have a background task that says, you know, I'm going to look for things I like, and, and the, the motivation for that is that when you see something that you like, something that you think is beautiful or so on, that, that actually um, 
there is a chemical change that occurs in, in the brain. There, there are opiates that are released and you actually do feel good from seeing something that you like. Well, um, we know from things like opiates that, that we also adapt to those in the brain. So, so you tend to get into a cycle. You almost condition yourself through this mm -hmm. process to look for things you like because you like that buzz that you get from seeing something that you like and so on and, and in the absence of any other task then if you're presented with a range of things then you're probably going to look for the things um, the things that you actually like mm -hmm. so this this was sort of the idea behind what I did in my PhD where I was um, modelling eye movements based on both consciously expressed preferences and then sort of totally passive free viewing tasks where I haven't given someone anything to do and trying to see whether I could predict what they liked based on just reading their eye movements at, at all. Um, and did you manage? Sort of, yeah. I found that, that you need to go beyond um, simple measures by sort of just saying, okay, it's just the amount of time you spend looking at something. It's actually, it, it, it's more about a, a pattern. Mm -hmm. and, and in the paper I use the phrase signature because that's what I think it is. I think you're looking for this sort of signature behaviour for a particular kind of decision process that they're going through. I think with eye movement research particularly, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of potential for going down this road further because mm -hmm. um, these days we're starting to see... Um, price of eye trackers and the size of eye trackers drop quite considerably to the point that in the next three to five years it's quite likely that when you buy a laptop there'll be an eye tracker built into it probably because it allows you to do certain kinds of things it, it might be that it's for gaming it might be that it's it's for actually operating the computer using your gaze mm -hmm. so those those devices already exist today just um and they're used um, by people with disabilities and so on. Most of the applications that use eye tracking today tend to use it more as just a directional thing. They're not yet at the point where they're actually saying, okay, I know something about you. I know something about what you're trying to do because of the way you're moving your eyes. I think this is the, the next big leap. And, and in, um, in human-computer interaction and... and uh, and then potentially in uh, digital advertising um, and so on. Here, Joseph asks Tim to talk about the ethical implications of deploying this new technology and products on the consumer marketplace, such as the Google Glass. That there are huge issues around um, regarding privacy mm -hmm. and and um, the ethics of of mind reading when when you're using um, something that can be recorded even without somebody knowing it. So I mean the thing about, about eye tracking is if I have a, an eye tracker in front of you, you don't need to know what it's doing at all. You don't need to know even that it's on and, and apart from um, with some eye trackers you can see a faint flickering of, of infrared light maybe when it's recording. Most of the time you might not even know. And that is one of the joys of, of eye tracking research is that it is so unintrusive. People, it doesn't affect people's behaviour 
as with, with it, your mouse clicks. Who has access to that information and how they interpret that information um, is, is, is a big issue. And, and if that information is actually revealing something about, about your innermost thoughts, your emotional responses to something, then it becomes quite contentious, I think. Joseph paints a picture of what he sees as a not-too-distant future, in much the same way that Amazon.com, for example, tracks your browsing history and advertises to you based on your patterns, sending you a kind of after-image of your desires. Perhaps these images will one day leave the computer screen and follow the user into their urban environment. If the user is looking at something in a shop window, ten minutes later will the advertising infrastructure of the shopping mall pick up the user's signature. Some, some of this technology is already there. Probably the hardest thing at the moment is actually the eye tracking because people don't have eye trackers mm. that they carry around with them as a matter of course. There's already technology that will track a person's movements through a space. They can model your attention in a different kind of way. Rather than your attention in terms of um, your visual attention, they're modeling the amount of time you spend dwelling physically stationary in a place. There's face recognition uh, uh, and facial encoding uh, technologies that will either recognize you, so, so we know who you are when you then look at another digital sign mm. a bit later. From your face, they can, um, they can pretty much get your age within three years. They can get your gender pretty much spot on. Um, they um, can model your emotional reaction to something by looking at the movement of the facial muscles. All of these technologies are already out there. It's, it's more a case of, of how it's linked together. You could be walking past a store, um, a, a camera in a, in a store window actually detects that you've been looking at something and then you didn't actually go into the store and buy it. Five minutes later, they Bluetooth you a voucher that says 10% off the thing that you were looking at in the shop window. This technology is all doable today. Um, the only thing that probably isn't there right now is the fine detail of the, of the gaze tracking that would allow you to say, okay, you were looking at, if you imagine a, um, a jewellery store, the fine detail that would allow you to say you were looking at that ring rather than that ring or that watch rather than that watch. It, that's the only piece of the pie that's missing, to be honest. Joseph asks once again about free will. Tim responds that the future is not the dystopia that technophobes fear, and explains that, in fact, this new technology has a lot of possibilities for doing good. We're painting quite a sinister picture of this, right. and, 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 and the same information can also be used for good too. The same information can be used to improve signage, to improve access to emergency facilities to hospitals, medical uh, implementations now are using similar technologies to, to look at improving information to surgeons when they're performing operations or microsurgery to, to give the best format of information to, to GPs when they're making a diagnosis. We, we're not necessarily always talking right. about marketing and sell, sell, sell and, 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 and the other thing is that 
Um, remember we talked about um, salience. The moment we start to, to be in a, a converged environment, the moment um, the visual input starts to get more similar, that increases the likelihood that something else will pull our attention. If I fill your entire visual scene with images of, of Starbucks, then at some point you're going to encounter a Costa. On top of that, as humans then, we kind of like novelty. We kind of get bored with things mm -hmm. after a while. I mean, we, we've all been through this process where we heard a record and the first time we heard it, we loved it. And the 50th time we heard it on the radio, it's like, oh, that is so overplayed, I never want to hear it again. And we like novelty, we like stimulation, we like something new. There is only so far, I think, that the, the marketing people could go with it. I mean, they will go as far as they can, I'm sure of that. Uh, and there is a lot of money being, being invested right now in actually going a long way. Humans are difficult to model. We are very difficult things, complex beings to understand. The one thing that is for certain is the moment you, you, you stabilise one thing, it will change. I can show you two sets of stimuli and you would like one thing one day and one thing another because of something else that's happened in the meantime. This is the problem for anyone who's, who's, who's thinking, who, who has a mission to, to converge everything because you'll never get there. The final part of this interview is about the future of architecture. How will this new field of data modify traditional design thinking? Will the architect be demoted? Or is there the possibility for this data to productively feed back into the process of designing spaces? I think anything that helps us to understand people's responses to things, people's behavior, either be it with an object or in a space, I, I think these, these are good things. And, and I think um, from a, a design perspective, from an architecture perspective, I, I think there's, there is a massive of, of potential there for, for learning more about the people that are going to use this very space that you are designing, um, be it their movement through the space, so a sort of group attention kind of process, um, or, or their individual um, attentional processes. Um, from an architect's perspective, if you, if you want people to be able to use your space, then communication about this kind of stuff and, and, and potentially even using the space um, to lead them through a narrative as they go through a building or lead them through two certain parts of the space, then, then this is where attention and eye tracking can very much be, be, be used, I think, as a way to develop spaces. The, the more we learn about, about emotional response in terms of visual attention as well, I, th I think um, that clearly has a, has a way to influence design, be it, be it design of components or be it design of whole buildings. The other thing is, I think, from, a, from an architecture perspective, is we, we, you know, we've talked a lot about technology, we've talked about screens and so on, and, and I think there is this other aspect that, that, um, that architects, as those I've spoken to, are already very aware of, is, is, is the fact that technology is now almost an integral part of, of, of building designs. I was at, uh, um, at the Guardian's offices uh, last week, and they are, um, the, the building is a, it's a lovely space, but 
the moment you walk through the door, there are there's almost like a public sort of lobby area with screens, and and these screens are giving you um, not just updates on the news, the kind of thing you'd expect from the Guardian, but they're also promoting the Guardian. They they are they are making this area, this public space, um, a marketing device for the owners of the building. Effectively, there is, I think, there is huge potential for for technology to be integrated in public spaces, not just from a marketing perspective, but from a, an information-giving perspective too, and, and from a encouraging people to interact with a space, to interact with a building, to, to give feedback on it, to respond to the building itself and to the design of the building. As we understand how people's attention and technology are related, I think this, again, is a way that, that it would inform architecture and inform designs. So I, I think there's... there's there's quite a few ways that all this can play in, um, in addition to um, the other kind of things to do with design, like um, colour, light, shape, and so on. Mm. And, and I think it's, it's a, I think we're at that point where the technologies are becoming more affordable, more accessible. I suspect you know we will see more of this. There are already some things around, particularly around face recognition. Mm -hmm. So you, you you can't you can't be recording people's faces um, in a store and and then using that information to to recognise them when they come back a week later. And and the same thing would go to um, to eye tracking data, particularly the moment eye tracking data starts to enable you to make some inference about cognition. I think mm -hmm. I remember I did, I did a study couple of years ago at the London Science Museum it was a big public study, eye tracking. A um, lot of kids being eye tracked as well. Um, and um, a couple of people who clearly were in the marketing industry came up to me whilst I was doing this and they were like, so um, so is all this information going to be publicly available once you finished? And, and, and I was like, um, no. The... the, <laughs> the the results of it, so mm. you know, would be, but but not everybody's individual eye tracking data. It's an important part of of this of this increasing accessibility to to either behavioural or um, neurological information. But that actually we, we we need to protect people's privacy. It, right. it needs to be built into this. But it, it's a kind of broader, broader questions of privacy in the future. Yeah. Um, but Tim, this has been yeah, a fascinating conversation. Thank you for talking to me. You're welcome. You've been listening to an interview on attention tracking technologies with Tim Holmes. Thanks to Joseph Bedford, doctoral candidate in architecture at Princeton University School of Architecture, for being our host. And to Tim Holmes, professor of psychology at Royal Holloway College London, for being our guest. The interview was produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture, by Griffin Ofish. Um, you might have read in the papers recently about, um, I think it was Benetton starting to use mannequins that, that actually have cameras built into them mm. that, that can actually therefore record what you're looking at in, in the story. Right. And it's almost like reverse eye tracking. Are they built into their eyes? Well, I hope so. I hope so. And I hope they shoot laser beams out of them or something um, yeah. when you don't shop there.